0: Hello, late night listeners. Uh, this is Brian, and I wanted to let you know that we have a Patreon. It's a really fun thing. It's a great way to support the show, and it gets you access to all kinds of exclusive stuff. We have exclusive mini episodes. We have videos of me, for example, writing music for various things of the show. Layton's doing all sorts of stuff, and it's just a really fun community. You also get access to our Discord if you sign up for our $5 a month tier or up. So uh, if you like the show and you like what you hear, please check us out over on Patreon. It's really a great way to to support us, thanks so much, and enjoy late night with Brian. Whacked. It's my Don Pardo impression. Are you from? L.A., Rachel? No, no,
1: I'm from Houston, Texas.
0: Oh, gotcha. Oh, okay.
1: I was in Chicago before that.
0: So my wife is an improviser. She's a Minnesotan who then was in Boston and then all over. But uh, because of that, has spent a bit of time in Chicago. And I feel like it's one of these major cities that I've been in, like, a tiny bit and don't really get, you know what I mean?
1: Get in what way?
0: I just haven't spent enough time there to really understand it. You know, like, I lived in New York, I lived in Boston, I lived in London, all over the world. Mostly U.S. though. But Chicago, like, I don't have a feel for the city or what the different neighborhoods are. I feel like Chicago is
1: so, like, a caricature of itself.
0: <laughs> yeah. You
1: know, it's just so simple. It's kind of... I don't know if you've had this experience, Brian, but in your early 20s where you're like, God, dudes are so complicated. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, no, they're not. Um, that's Chicago. It's just like, wow, what an intricate city full of complex people and art. And then it's like, nope, just everyone's drunk. And everyone's just- <laughs> oh, that's what it is.
2: With a lot of places, there is that arc where it's like, oh, beautiful, historical. Oh,
0: no, they have open
2: container laws. And now it's just drunk tourists everywhere. Please help us.
0: Chicago always felt like one of those places where it's like, okay, here's the downtown. Oh, no, that's where the tourists hang out. Okay, where are the actual cool parts? Okay, I guess that's over here.
1: I went to an art school, so I was hanging out with people that like 17 people who lived in a warehouse, they built walls between their rooms and like Uh had shows where they would bleed all over drum kits and like do like blue man group people, Um, which Uh is a real thing that happened. Uh, And I was like, oh no, even before, I mean, imagine now knowing what we know about the world and diseases. Oy vey.
0: (laughs) Oy vey indeed. Yeah. Yeah. But Chicago, I spent just a little bit of time there. And every time I go there, it seems great. And you can never tell just by visiting a place, but it it seems pretty livable. And there's lots of, of course, suburbs that are pretty close. Is that your sense of it? That it's like, it would be a good place to like live as an adult. I don't know how old you were when you lived there.
1: I was in college, but my school didn't have like a campus or anything. So I lived all over the city and I really loved my experience for what I had there. But I need to be chill like i was not cold i was very cold all the time like my eyelashes was off but i just need to be um somewhere where i'm not expected to keep up with a party oh let me just turn off my slack notifications oh my oh, sure. gosh. <laughs> <What a nightmare. laughs>
2: well at least that sound will strike fear into the hearts of any listener who uses slack
1: it literally just gave me a panic attack.
0: <laughs> I, was like, I, I felt like kind of a dick for doing this, but about a year ago, maybe even two years ago, I was like, I'm not on Slack anymore. I refuse to use it for anything. I like, I haven't had to. I'm sure if it was like necessary, I would do it. But I had a bunch of like work-type things where people were like, should we start a Slack? And I just said, look, I deleted the app. I can't do it to myself anymore. I have enough apps that are going on. So I took myself out of the Slack ecosystem about a year to two years ago.
1: I bet that feels great for you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It would, except then I replaced it with Discord.
1: At least a little bit more fun. Like Slack is so intended for business. And by the way, holy shit, did you guys see that Slack did? (laughs) I can't wait. (laughs) Slack did a WeHawk collaboration. And they made Slack shoes, like they were what? trying to make it a thing, like it was a hype. Oh, thing. Like, like remember when Zoom first came out, and everybody's like, "Wow, the future!" It's like if Zoom did yeah. like an Adidas collab.
2: It's just wild. What the fuck? I'm looking at this right now.
0: Oh, yeah, I got hold on. And it's like not Slack bad. Or Reebok. <laughs> hold on. What, what? What? Who did they collab with? I, I, you cut out for just a second there.
2: Cole Hahn, I think. Oh, hold oh. on. Even better. Thank you.
0: <laughs> wow. That is even better.
2: These seem like Slack all birds, you know? Yeah. Where it's just
0: like, yeah, these are ugly. Keep scrolling. These are not as bad as I would have thought.
1: But they're not that bad. It's just absolutely ridiculous. It's like if XL was like, yeah, we're going to come out with like enamel pins. Nobody needs that.
2: <laughs> I mean, if, if XL did like some sort of nice printed like button down shirt, it's like, here's our classy... Excel spreadsheet
0: core who has enough brand loyalty to Slack to be like got to get them shoes somebody who drinks a lot of soylent
1: <laughs> yeah or moon juice
0: yeah it's like oh, tech person right like the i would imagine the only people who wear these live in the bay area
1: <laughs> no but A tech person would think it was passe. It would be like a a soda aficionado being into Diet Coke. Like, okay. (laughs) I don't know if there are soda aficionados, but I'd like to think that there are.
0: Oh, there definitely are.
2: I have soda in my mouth right now. I'm I'm drinking a, you know, tall glass. What kind of soda? Oh, glass bottle of Mexican Coke.
1: Oh, I like that.
2: Yeah, because I woke up from a bad nap and then was like, oh no, I have to be conscious and say words out of my mouth. Yeah. So here I am. Supposed
1: to do a good thing. And then you wake up and you're like, you made me worse.
2: I gaslight (laughs) myself every single time. Like, I'll take a nap. I'm going to wake up feeling rested and only do it quickly and really turn my day around. And then the way that it turns my day around is I feel bad now. Yeah. (laughs) Speaking of soda aficionados, have y'all been to in Atlanta, Georgia, the Coca-Cola Museum.
0: I actually have not. I've spent a bit of time in Atlanta and never been to the Coke Museum because I was always like, how good is this actually going to be?
2: Oh, you're not missing much. Oh, yeah.
0: I'd rather go to like a cool bookstore or something than (laughs) the fucking Coke Museum.
2: What's the big
1: attraction? Like, do they have a ride?
2: (laughs) 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 The Coca Cola ride? They just put you in a little bottle and shake you up. Um, (laughs) It's like a splash zone kind of thing where instead of water, you're getting splashed with Coke.
1: It's just Willy Wonka They put you in a, like a tube of carbonation and shoot you out <laughs> of the top of the thing.
0: By the way, that scene upset me so much in the Gene Wilder oh, yeah. uh, Willy Wonka.
2: It's great. They go for it so hard. It's like, here's a
0: lizard for some reason.
2: <laughs> that that always got me.
0: And they're going to get like killed by the fan because they're not burping enough?
1: That was the only thing that actually very much scared me was Gene Wilder's eye contact in the boat. Oh yeah. God, yes. And the fan, because those are just blades.
0: Yes. And of course, the first time you see that There is no assurance that these children are going to be fine. (laughs) There's a lot of implied death in this movie. Absolutely. Those kids get picked off one by one scream fashion. And you're like, well, that's it. They're fucking dead. Like, that's it. They're gone.
2: Yeah. It's like slasher adjacent. Like, it would only take the gentlest nudge to push it right into that territory. Yes. Yeah. It's funny to me because I realized that Every time I would watch it as a kid, I would fast forward through the, whatever the song is that Charlie's mom sings. Mm -hmm. And I found out recently that like everyone does that, apparently.
1: (laughs) I know that there is that scene, but I could
0: not place the song. Me neither at all.
2: It is the most forgettable part of the movie. And it's like so weirdly somber and slow. Cheer up, Charlie.
0: I feel like that movie for me squarely falls into the category of, oh, watch this movie, kid, you'll like it. And then you watch it and you're like, this is fucking terrifying.
1: (laughs) I watched a lot of terrifying movies as a kid. So I don't remember that being particularly effective to me. But my first crush was Beetlejuice. Oh, good choice. Yeah. Yeah. My brain was done.
0: (laughs) I have a Beetlejuice question for both of you. Yeah. Tell me if you think this is something that was changed from the original script. I saw Beetlejuice in the theaters in 88 when I would have been 13. That's right. 88, right? Isn't that Beetlejuice? Somewhere around mid to late 80s. So, okay, so there's the scene where he he's in the model and he sees the house in the model. You know what I'm talking about?
1: hmm
0: Yes. Before that, he, I believe, know I could be conflating different things in the movie, he grows little spikes, like horns, out of his body to prevent Alec Baldwin from picking him up. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, yep. <laughs> and so he's got horns or spikes jutting out of his body and he sees kind of red light district thing. And instead of saying, I'm feeling horny, Mm -hmm. he says, I'm feeling a little uh, anxious. And (laughs) by the way, solid Beetlejuice impression. I think we'll all have to admit. it was pretty good. Yeah, it was all right. Why would they not have him say, I'm feeling a little horny? It's like he's growing horns out of his body.
1: So right about that. That sounds like one of those things that you dub over later, you know?
2: Yeah, like
0: bad ADR.
2: The substitution of anxious is really funny because I think I can fully (laughs) relate to the like, the real joke here is saying that I'm horny, but really just anxious.
1: I mean, thinking about the fact that he said anxious makes me laugh more than if he would have said horny, I think. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about it, you know?
0: (laughs) Yes, that's a good point. It's very possible they were like, that's too on the nose. Right
1: also, if somebody told me that I made them anxious, that honestly is the cutest thing. This is why he was my first crush. Now we see it
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just a sweet guy.
1: he's just a little sweetie, just a little dirt man. My nickname as a kid was dog meat, so I was not <laughs> <laughs> I would not die. Like I loved the dirt. I loved being in the mud. And when I saw Beetlejuice, I remember I was think I was like five or six, and I went around telling people that that was my husband. <laughs> my mom was like, "Hey, please, no, don't." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, love wins.
2: Oh my goodness, <laughs> you are on the correct podcast. This has been this is a re- a recurring thing. <laughs> So, Rachel, you mentioned watching terrifying movies very young. Like, what were some of the ones that, like, stick out in your mind?
1: Oh, my God. Well, two specifically, I would say my first memory, really, even. Like, I know that it's (laughs) technically not, but it's the most visceral memory I have, um, is when I was probably six And we were on a family road trip. And I have older parents, and I have an older sister. So by the time they had me, it was just a very lax environment. (laughs) (laughs) They had me at like 40. So by the time they had me, they were like fully realized humans. And So, so we were on a road trip from Texas to Colorado. And my sister, she was like seven or eight at the time. She was not old, old. And she thought it was a good idea to put on The Shining. So uh <laughs> I pretty much lasted half of the car ride. So we watched The Shining. It was the literally the scariest thing I've ever seen. And I still, to this day, like, I just watched Dr. Sleep.
0: I just watched Dr. Sleep. I want to talk about it. As soon as you're done with the story, I want to talk about this.
1: I cannot watch. <laughs> the lady in the bathtub. Like, I it stayed with me in such a way that I have such a fear of bathrooms. Like, up until probably, like, two years ago, I couldn't open bathtub curtains.
2: Uh,
0: um, wow.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I would just assume there was something. And I also have an incredibly vivid imagination. So, like, I create monsters where there are not monsters. And if you give me a monster... Like, of course, I'm going to place that in my reality. so mm-hmm. that lady in the bathtub stayed with me more than anything else in the movie. Obviously, the whole movie was horrifying, but mm. um, I really did love it, and that's why I watched it because even from that age, I was like, I was like, I am going to watch this. I didn't cry. I didn't like tell them to turn it off. I wanted to mm-hmm. watch it, but it truly fucked me up for 20 years. <laughs> um,
0: <Wow. laughs> so let, okay, Layton, have you seen Doctor. Sleep? Yes, I
2: did. It was actually one of the last things I did before pandemic hit. I went over to Jory's and we were
0: drinking whiskey and watching the old Dr. Sleep. I have to say, I'm a huge Shining fan. Dr. Mm-hmm. Sleep was not that bad. Like, I had a great time watching it.
1: Mm-hmm. I was confused because it came out the gate very Panic! at the Disco. Like... <laughs> 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 For 20 minutes, like... Honestly, that was very <laughs> punk and I'm not, I'm not, not into it. It just wasn't what I was expecting. And then the story unfolded, like it just wasn't The Shining. And that's what I'm so happy about. I had a really good time watching it and I thought it was really well cast.
0: and McGregor, always great, right? Always great.
1: Never not good.
0: Yes. And they had the guy, what's his name? Carol. I can't remember his last name. The giant from Twin Peaks. Yeah. From Twin Peaks. Oh, sure. Always happy to see him getting work because he's a cool-looking dude.
1: Any giants getting work, they're not long for this world.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> but Leighton, you're relatively silent <laughs> so far. What was your opinion of Dr. Sleep? I really fucking hated Dr. Sleep. Kind of figured.
2: I'm not a Mike Flanagan head by any stretch of the imagination. I really dislike I liked Hush. I, I, I'm not a, a big fan of his shit. And like the hats could not take hat people seriously because I was like, am I in this Silver Lake Starbucks right now? Hats
0: were a little much.
2: Because they all wear the same hat. And I'm like, "Who? one of these people has to work at like a gourmet hat store because it's like, why does everyone have these suspiciously nice hats with like feathers in them and shit? I don't trust this. But anyway, that's what I was thinking the entire time.
0: Fair enough. Of course. Yeah ok, so this movie I really did not like was ready Player One. um <laughs>
2: Brian, what
0: you didn't like Ready Player <laughs> One? I know. Who would have guessed I didn't like the I didn't dislike the book as much as many other people disliked it. I'm also squarely in the demographic that it was written for.
1: I disliked it with every ounce of me,
0: yeah. many, many people did, which is a totally valid opinion because, I mean, honestly, look, if I wasn't forty five <laughs> i I'm sure I would have hated it. <laughs> having Zork as a significant plot element, I was like, okay, I get it. This this is for me.
2: Yeah, it's the laser targeting at your demographic's very specific shared brain.
0: Yes, but I will say, was it well-written? No. Was the plot stupid? Yes. Did it take forever to solve puzzles that were either impossible or immediately obvious? Of course. But was the movie equally dumb? Again, the answer is yes. But the one scene in that movie where I was like, fuck yes, was when they went to the Overlook. And I thought that particular thing was so great yeah. just to like show up in the overlook and fucking walk around for a little bit. That was the one part of the movie where I felt like spielberg wonderment, you know, whatever the fuck that emotion is he's trying to get you to get.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's the one scene that I've seen from that movie. And like, it, it, it's fun and cute. And I just thought in Dr. Sleep for me, at least, it was the most like, anticlimactic spoilers for Dr. Sleep folks when, when like all the other like ghosts show up where it's like oh it's the twins and all this shit the like costumes looked like shitty Halloween costumes a little bit I couldn't yeah. take any of the movie seriously and also watching things with Jory really does bring out a certain level of recreational hatred in me so yes. you know grain of salt <laughs>
1: I was blasted off my ass. Like, I was so, so, so high that I do think that elevated the experience for me. And when I saw that it was basically a My Chemical Romance music video, I was into it.
2: I was like, like, sign me up, Gerard. I'm here.
0: I also went in with, like, rock-bottom expectations. It was on some streaming service I had. so I didn't have to pay for it. I went in thinking... This is gonna be stupid, yeah, and it was better than that, so that's a plus, you know,
2: I feel like that does wonders for any movie like if you go in thinking it's going to be dog shit you're and it's like actually good, you're gonna have a great, great, great time.
1: What a fun marketing campaign, holy shit, if somebody had enough money to let me do this, I would kill this campaign for somebody, make an incredible movie, like a touching. Oscar-worthy movie and market it like Hubie Halloween.
0: <laughs> That's an amazing idea. I really, really love that. So you could get people to start hating on it virally. Right. right? Yeah. Like, turn it into, yeah, Grown Ups too or whatever. <laughs> Hubie Halloween. I didn't see it, but I heard it was... Actually, I heard people say good things about it.
2: Lighten, did you see it? I didn't see it, but funny that we're mentioning Adam Sandler now because yesterday I was just re-watching like the first nine minutes and 59 seconds of Uncut Gems is on YouTube. And I was re-watching that, and I was like, oh, was, it was only 10 minutes. I want to watch the entire movie right now in the middle of the day. I love this shit. All that to say, I'm glad to see Adam Sandler returning to his roots.
0: Tell me about your relationship to Adam Sandler, because I feel, I can talk about mine later, but I'm more interested in <laughs> yours. Sounds complicated. It's really not, I promise you. Uh, well, I don't know, you're framing it like relationship, like... Yeah, for real. I guess I'll talk about mine. So for me, given my age, he was that SNL cast that was there when I was in high school. Mm. Right? Which is, this is not actually true for me, but the conventional wisdom is whatever SNL cast you had when you were in high school is the one that you think is the best forever. So when I was in high school, that was like Sandler, Farley, Spade, Will Ferrell. Yep. It was right before Polar and Fay, that era. Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, I guess we're just slightly before. And I think he's fine. Like, I don't seem to love him as much as everyone else did. I never loved the fucking Hanukkah song and all that shit. Like, he's clearly funny. But, like, Will Ferrell I thought was amazing. You know, I thought he was the best. Adam Sandler seemed very bro-y and not my style (laughs)
1: He's <laughs> got like the Pete Davidson thing where it's like, you're young and cute and you got the guitar and you got the thing and like, good for you. <laughs> you got the man, Like you do the one thing, like good, good, yep. I'm happy. I was like a, I was a kid kid when he was, when it was that cast. I think that that's the yeah. best, best cast too, though. Like Sherry O'Terry and
0: Molly Shannon and. Molly Shannon. The best. The best. I love Molly Shannon. Absolute best. Everything she does, I think she's incredible. Yeah.
1: I couldn't agree more. And like, I think that that's the best cast. But since I was such a young kid and I'm Jewish and I grew up in Texas where being a Jew is not the most common thing, uh, we were just absolutely pummeled with christian and like christmas rhetoric all the time so the hanukkah song as a child like as a very young child was really fun to have and i know that it's not like very rare or anything especially
0: my father was jewish so i am half
1: yeah so like to see that on tv and to be like yeah we are other than and we do have our own thing like that is cool to see and when like billy madison and waterboy and all that stuff came out i was at the Exact right age like I was elementary school to middle school and uh-huh. I loved it like I loved it obviously like it's not very fun to go back and watch because you're like oh no oh no oh no <laughs> you said all the bad things but yeah I really have a very 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 um soft spot for Adam Sandler in my heart. And when I saw him do Hubie Halloween and that he was the Dubois, like it was from Waterboy, (laughs) uh, I was like, this is problematic. And I do love it.
0: (laughs) Wait, I, I think I missed this. Is Hubie Halloween, he's the same character as in Waterboy? Is that true?
1: Well, he's the Dubois. Yeah, he's the same character. They don't talk about it, but he is Dubois, which is the last name in Waterboy. And there are the O'Donnells in it as well, who were like the bullshit oh. family. And obviously Kathy Bates wasn't the mom, but they got somebody Kathy Bates adjacent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think we might have talked about this on an earlier episode of the podcast. Did you read the Grown Ups 3 script by Tom Sharpling? God, no. <laughs> no, no, you should read it because it is a meta comedy thing. And Tom Sharpling is like an alt-comedy god. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's a very influential guy in that scene. And he wrote a spec script, basically as like an extended comedy bit, but it's also a real script for Grown Ups 3, where, I don't want to spoil too much, but it turns into a slasher flick during the filming of Grown Ups 3. Uh, So all the actors are playing themselves. It's very Scream-esque in a sense, and it is legitimately funny and worth reading. How do I find it? If you Google Grown Ups 3, I'm sure it'll show up. It's just downloadable anywhere. He put it up and said, I wrote this for free. I think it's really funny. Check it out. Uh, And I went to, I can't remember when, it was earlier this year, a reading they did, this pre-pandemic, in LA, where they got, you know, none of the actual people, but they got a bunch of comedy types to come read as, you know, David Spade and uh, Rob Schneider and Adam Sandler and all that. Uh, it's, It's really, really funny and worth, you know, you can read it in like half an hour. It's totally worth your time. I'm going to.
2: Adam Sandler never really, like, sought his stuff out. Like, I haven't seen Punch Drunk Love.
0: Oh, I love Punch Drunk Love. Anyway. Yeah,
2: I fucking love Uncut Gems. And also on the level of just, like, I have never heard a bad thing about Adam Sandler. Like, the, the only shit that I've ever heard, like, he is great to work with, super funny, super nice, like, very generous. Like, you know, it gives crew gifts to people where it's like, hey, we're all going to Hawaii. Like, it, it's just kind of like, hanging out with his friends, making stuff, uh, varying degrees of yeah. quality, which I don't know. I respect that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask Rachel, cause I think this is interesting to me. So I grew up, you know, half Jewish in New Jersey. I have a very clear memory in, you know, I don't know, middle school, probably even younger about not understanding antisemitism. Cause I was like, well, half <laughs> the world is Jewish and half the world is Christian. So do people just hate half the people in the world? Uh, <laughs> Because that's what New Jersey is. New Jersey is so Jewish. Most of the people I knew, actually, in my family and friends were Jewish. But that was probably not the experience you had in Texas, I'm gathering.
1: Oh, no. I mean, I did, I went to a school my whole life. So it wasn't, like, very Jewish, like, we don't keep kosher. We don't.
0: Oh yeah, no, no. Whole
1: thing no, no. or anything. And my school was not like that. It was very culturally Jewish. It was kind of like yeah. a place to go if you wanted to go to a Jewish school, but you also like don't really fuck with the Torah like that.
0: <laughs> that was everyone I knew in Jersey. I didn't know a single <laughs> conservative Jew in New Jersey. Everyone I knew was culturally.
1: Yeah, technically we were conservative, but not Orthodox. We were just the conservative uh, it was just right. about the synagogue you went to it doesn't matter but i did go to a jewish school but i was very aware of how other we were i mean obviously in texas the only jews i knew i went to school with and we got a lot of like bomb threats and death threats and
0: oh my god really Jesus. Oh, oh, yeah.
1: oh yeah sure it was like not an uncommon thing for us to go like okay everyone gather outside like if <laughs> we got a little bomb threat. oh god Ugh. Yeah, it was, it was pretty weird.
0: And this is in in Houston, a major metropolitan area.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's we were very lucky in that regard. Houston's very blue and very cool and um, mm-hmm. big art scene. I loved growing up there, and we didn't experience a ton of anti-Semitism. It was just kind of the fact that we were a large Jewish organization, and we were all in one place that it made it easy enough to like d- do a little bomb threat, do a little death threat, right. <laughs> and when oh, we would play sports and stuff, when we go to other schools, especially, and I was also a competitive boxer. So that took me. Oh, wow. Yeah. So so that took me to places like McAllen, Texas, and like places that were a little bit not, there wasn't a large Jewish population there.
0: Where is McAllen? I don't know Texas that well, but.
1: McAllen's right on the border. Of what? Of Texas and, oh, right. that When you say that <laughs> in Texas, like everyone's like, oh, the border of Mexico.
0: Okay, just making sure. That's what I figured. No, no, no but- that's
1: very valid. Yeah, it's right on the border, like right by this place called Terralingua where we used to like camp out and stuff and hide from javelinas. Texas is weird as hell. <laughs> but yeah, whenever we would go out to different places, like people thought it was funny to be like, where are your horns? And I was like, what?
0: <laughs> people, oh my God, wow.
1: Oh, that was very, yeah. That was that's a big wild. One.
0: That was definitely not an experience that I was familiar with in New Jersey because everybody is Jewish in New Jersey. Like, it's too common. Oh, that's upsetting.
1: You know, it gave me a healthy hatred of people, which I think is like, you know, I, don't think, <laughs> I think it's unhealthy to grow up thinking that everybody's on your side.
0: <laughs> yeah, for sure.
1: Rachel,
2: I actually didn't even mean to segue into an introduction. Normally, it's like 45. 50 minutes in where we're like, oh yeah, I guess we should introduce what the show is.
0: Oh, we should do it though.
2: <laughs> but Rachel, I fucking loved your witching hour segment, which for those listening, if you don't know, it's a show that we were both a part of for Halloween. And it was just like super great. And I was like, oh my God, we have to have her on the podcast. I want to talk to her.
0: Thank you. So let us introduce ourselves then. I think that's a great idea, Layden. Tight. Uh, everyone, this is Layden.
2: Hi, that's me. That voice was just Brian. What's up? Mystery guest. Would you care to introduce yourself? And I'm Rachel.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Rachel, can you just say a few words about yourself, who you are, what you do, where people might know you from, that kind of stuff? Favorite
1: animal,
2: social security number. Yeah,
1: I can do that. I just remembered mine. I just figured out how to remember all of the numbers. So I'm very happy (laughs) to do that to you right now. I am Rachel uh, Sam Evans. I don't know why I said that like that. Like, I <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> because there are periods after all of your names, yes. Uh,
1: yeah, no, 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 there are. And you have to say it like that. And you have to take of a different breath for every word. Yeah, I used to do some YouTube stuff. I had a show called Dark Five, which you can now watch on Amazon, shameless plug. And Ooh. now I'm on a show about ghosts and stuff on the Travel Channel. And I run social and marketing for Smoush.
0: The Smosh.
1: That's right, Smosh. We just celebrated our 15-year anniversary.
0: Wow, congratulations. Thank you. I saw, I think Anthony was posting about that or something, yeah.
1: Yeah, he sure was. That was really, really kind of him. It's honestly dope. It's a great place to work.
0: And how long have you been there?
1: I've been there a year, which feels crazy because most of that year has been in quarantine. Hey. Right? Oh, Yeah, yeah. Pretty nuts.
0: So what do you, in your capacity as running social, like, what do you do there? So for a while, I ran social for Game Grumps uh, for about two or three years.
2: Where your entire ethos was shed as many followers as possible as quickly as possible.
0: That's exactly right. I tried to get people to unfollow us as as much as I (laughs) could and was (gasps) extremely successful at that.
1: Same. Yeah.
0: (laughs) My philosophy was... Do stuff that annoys people so much they feel compelled to either log off and or unfollow. Yeah, it it really it really worked out. So is, t- tell me about what do you do? What's your experience? That kind of stuff.
1: It's kind of interesting and complicated because like with this new media digital stuff, everybody is everything. And yes, uh, when you say like social media, that you think of one thing, but you don't really think of the other stuff. Like back in 2014 when I started my YouTube channel, snarled. I was on camera because I needed to be like I couldn't pay anybody to be on camera yet, so I had to do it until I could pay other people to do it.
0: But you didn't really want to.
1: I'm not compelled. Like I don't want to be famous. I'm not compelled to like have attention like that. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in interesting things, and I do a good job of researching those things and presenting those facts. So like, it was always easy enough for me to do kind of like a listicle style just heavy fact thing with dark 5 on snarled but what i really enjoyed doing was like data and analytics huh. so i carried that with me after i left snarled i went on to a few other places and like continued to do that and so I'm doing that over at Smosh on like the monetized, it's called so boring to anybody who is not interested in
0: this. No, experience. no, <laughs> I love this.
1: Yeah, me too. This is
0: my favorite thing.
1: What I love is like understanding the data analytics behind like something like a Facebook backend mm-hmm. to understand how to optimize content, to make the most money, reach the most people, whatever the motivation of the company is at that moment. But I just find it so interesting. It's almost like playing the stocks. Like you read trends and you understand how your audience is perceiving you in a very like number and analytical way. And that is probably like 65% of my job. And then I manage a team of people that create content for Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Twitch, Facebook.
0: Parlor, of course.
1: <laughs> of course. Tumblr. Yep my space. And also like I tweet and stuff. So like whenever Smosh is tweeting, the ideas come from everybody. So like I try to keep it as faceless as possible. It's not like it's like, Hey, Rachel here tweeting a Smosh, but yes, you know, I try to be on set as much as possible. So like when jokes happen, I can tweet about it.
0: Okay. Since we're really getting into the weeds here, I have a specific social media thing I want to ask you about. Yeah. And it's something that tweaks me, but I've seen other people Defend it. So I'm curious what your opinion is. This is very nitpicky, but it is when a group account, like a Smosh, anything that's not an individual, tweets in the first person singular. So it's like the Smosh account would be like, "I was just watching a movie," and right. I, I, I hate this. I hate it because I, <laughs> I can't tell who's saying it, especially if the account does not have an obvious person behind it. I would
1: agree. Like, to an extent. Yeah. Because I feel like there are certain, like, Twitter formats that lend itself to, like, you have to be. But it's not really I. Like, if you're putting it in the context of a Twitter format or meme or something, people pretty immediately recognize that you are talking about the meme. Right. Like, I didn't know he had it like that or something, talking about if he's we Oh, for sure. Something like that. Where it's very clearly a collective voice. But if people reply and they're like, Oh, I haven't seen that. Thank you very much. It's like, well, who, what? Exactly. <laughs> I did like a smosh face reveal, like admin reveal, because my favorite thing to do is just troll people, not in like an you know, an abusive oh. way, but just in like a you think you're talking to smosh and you're having a good time and like, you know, let's do it. Um you're in well, good company I, yes, there.
0: Yeah. Is all I can say to that. <laughs> I
1: did a face reveal and it was just a bunch of ham hocks, like in a top hat. And I was like, you're social admin.
0: Oh, I posted the same picture of a turkey multiple times a day for about a year. <laughs> Except on Thanksgiving. That was the one day I wouldn't do it. Yeah.
2: <laughs> the commitment, the sheer commitment. So, Rachel, in terms of like general takeaways that you've gotten sort of from like the data and analytics side, like what... Has surprised you the most, or like what sticks with you? It feels weird asking questions like this because this is like a quote unquote interview show where we never actually interview anyone about anything yeah. except like what's the Taco Bell item you miss most? She's ready to crunch. Oh, <laughs> rest, rest in pieces. But this is like honestly,
1: people ask me all the time because I try to help out my friends who are starting new businesses or starting new content channels or whatever. I try to help them out as much as possible um, in the way of like. Facebook and stuff like that, things that are not as sexy, but I, I know that I can do well, (laughs) but generally speaking with data and analytics, the thing that is surprising most to me is how it's just so intuitive. I think like people tend to question themselves when there's a lot of like data And numbers involved because they think that that you're looking at Bible, but what you're looking at is a reflection of an audience behavior. And what is more interesting about that is why is the audience behaving in that way? And what are we doing to elicit that behavior? So like, Mm -hmm. if you see a bunch of people drop off at the six second point. It's because that's when the preview ended and you didn't entice them enough to make them stay and watch the rest of the thing. And that's like a very intuitive thing. But, you know, I get in the weeds sometimes because I am tweeting and I am, you know, posting on Instagram and TikTok and Reels and like all of that stuff. But when I'm really able to look at things from like a video by video basis and really understand why something worked or didn't work it is super exciting to make those changes and then see it reflected in the thing because as storytellers or like as creative people, you want to uh, tell a cohesive story and like make something good that you would like. But being able to see something through the perspective and lens of like, A consumer on Facebook on their phone scrolling, Uh and what are the little games you can play with them to make them stick around? Like, we've created entire interactive trivia. On our video, just because we knew that if they stuck around for six more seconds, they were going to see something that they were going to like, and they were going to stick around for another six seconds, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really smart.
1: It's just fun little games, and like it feels like in a way you're playing Sims because you're like feeding <laughs> people stuff, and you're like, did you like that?
0: <laughs> what is the demographic that you're primarily talking to? Is it like teenagers or? Slightly older.
1: Well, that's the other thing that I love about this job is that I am dealing with five completely different platforms that are different in every way. Right. There's a lot of overlap, but like if you look at our Facebook audience, that's a 3% overlap to our YouTube audience.
0: You mean just with the people, the actual people or the demographic?
1: Yeah, our audience. So we have 10.2 million people who follow us on Facebook and only 3% of that audience came there from YouTube. We very rarely shoot original content for Facebook. So what we'll do is take a YouTube video, package it completely differently, and then present it on Facebook to a completely different audience. So like something like Eat It or Yeet It, which is our flagship show on Smosh Pit, turns into a Mystery Bite Challenge, which goes from twenty minutes to four minutes huh. and becomes a like more of a game show. Um, so on Facebook, like we definitely skew older. We have a lot more women than we do on any other platform. It's about even women. To men.
0: What does older mean in Facebook? Is that still people in their like 20s or is it even older than that?
1: No, it's older than that. It's older than that. It's anywhere from really our main demographic is like 18 to like 40s. Mm-hmm. And we also have a really strong, like, international audience, specifically in the Philippines. They really like our slapstick physical comedy.
0: Mm, that's awesome.
1: It's awesome, but it's also like, oh my God, now we need to up our more trivia based, like, American stuff so that we reach an American audience. It's all, it's all a little game.
0: That's really interesting. I think about that a lot. My main thing is this band, Ninja Sex Party, which is a comedy band, and we are an English language comedy thing. And I think a lot about how does that translate to the rest of the world? It's easier because it's all music. So there are, you know, probably a significant number of people who hear what we do and actually don't care about it being funny and just like the music. And there are plenty of people, probably not a majority, but certainly thousands of people who listen to our stuff. And don't have English as a first language, certainly don't have American English mm-hmm. with all of its idioms as a first language. And probably some of the specific things we're saying are getting a bit lost. I find that international thing, especially when it comes to comedy, yeah, really, really interesting.
1: You're very lucky, though, because I think if you think about things in a very general sense, it's good to reach a broader audience. But if you're thinking about things like getting real business about it, like CPM and RPM and revenue on Facebook and stuff like that, yeah. you don't want to be that international. You want to reach that American audience because that's what people are paying more advertising money for. On Facebook, you might actually have a really great opportunity to like reach not- not 10.2 million people, but 2 million people who will be very loyal to you and you'll get like a very high return on that. Yeah. That's where I love social media too, because people feel so defeated by it. I know I can, like if I post like a fire picture of my butt and it doesn't get a lot of, (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, well, I'm not worthy, but it's all about like what your motivation with it is. Like, is your motivation to get a bunch of empty likes? No. With me posting a picture of my dumb butt, that is a wrong reason to post an Instagram. Yeah. You know, what do you want from this? Do you want to reach a bunch of people or do you want to really speak to the people that you are reaching?
0: Yeah.
2: I'm curious what your perspective is on like, just sort of the more predatory extreme of that same sort of thing that we're just like kind of seeing over and over with like, selling data, et cetera, and what I guess would consider like predatory nature of a lot of it, of like sure. playing off of parasocial relationships. I'm just really fascinated by that stuff because it is kind of like this new realm of ethics that I feel like not as many people are talking about, but that is like clearly having a huge effect on society at large right now.
0: Are you asking like, basically, what's the line between doing stuff that people engage in and taking advantage of people who might be parasocially involved in whatever the thing is. Is that the question?
2: I guess. I think I'm being intentionally vague because I'm curious about how both of you interpret it. I just think it's an interesting topic and more of me introducing a topic than asking a specific question.
1: I think that you're right. I think that is so interesting. And it's something I think about a lot, especially with the nature of Smosh, like having such young fans. I think it's all about intention, which I try to approach, like obviously the things that we've been talking about are very cut and dry and pragmatic, but I really do like people a lot. That's why I love my job is because I get to... Not just engage with people, but also try to give them what they want. Try to give them something that will be cool and exciting for them and something that I know if I were in their shoes, I would want. So I think it is about intention. Of course, like we all have to promote merch, you know, we all have to yeah, right. sell a brand deal or whatever. But the way that I try to present it is this is something we've made, it's something we're proud of, and it's something that we think you'll like. We don't incentivize people buying our stuff. It's a really, really fine line. And I think, especially with YouTubers nowadays, it becomes this like, oh my God, you're just constantly pushing your shit and you're trying to sell like grab bags to nine year olds. Like, this is gross.
2: Yeah.
1: Or just like using your data from a more esoteric perspective. I understand on Twitter that people want to see pictures of Shane. So I give them pictures of Shane, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh And, in a way, is that predatory? Yeah, totally. But my intention with it is never to promote something. It's always to like try to keep the community engaged.
0: Yeah, I don't think that's predatory. Yeah, neither do I. I would call that knowing your audience.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel that way. And I don't really like them. <laughs> we happen to have like a really great audience. I mean, obviously, we have a lot of people who are like, where's Anthony? Like That is the number one comment on literally anything we post on the internet. Of course which is fine. But the people who dig it, they really dig it. And I also think it helps that I was like super bullied growing up because it's very easy for me to ignore mean people.
0: (laughs) That's actually something I wanted to ask, because this is something I still think about, I should say, is how to respond to haters. My philosophy is just completely ignore them. And, you know, sometimes I'll mute, but I never block. I just don't respond and only deal with positivity. Right. But I understand that there are good reasons for saying that's a bad strategy. Like, I think there are very philosophically solid reasons for saying, no, 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 you have to put that shit down and get rid of it. But my personal philosophy is ignore it and reward positivity, and then positivity will follow. But I'm curious what yours is.
1: Yeah, I love that. I think it really differs from individual to company. I am like speaking for a whole bunch of people. And a brand that people love. If I were an individual creator, I think I would probably reply to a more of the contentious things uh-huh. that were presented with because I think it's funny. <laughs> I wouldn't reply and be like, right. "Wow, I'm sad about this," and no, oh no, me. But I would probably like roast them. <laughs> but at a certain point, you have to realize like you might be doxing people.
0: Mm. Well, exactly.
1: And mosh, troll somebody, that is an invitation. I know at least off the top of my head, 20 stands on Twitter who, if I even replied to a comment, they would be on it immediately. So I'm like, yeah, I don't need to like incite the army
0: here. No, 100%. I think about this all the time. It's Mm -hmm. like, yeah, you could kind of playfully roast someone, but for various reasons, the most obvious being that stuff just doesn't translate as good-natured roasting in text form people will think, oh, like you're legitimately mad at this person and then possibly go after them. Right. And then you've got this probably generally young person who is about to get annihilated on Twitter because you made a playful joke at them. I think about this all, all, all the time Yeah. with my accounts. And because the last thing I want is for someone to get attacked on social media.
2: Right. There's such a huge responsibility of people with any amount of following to understand like, the consequences and implications of doing that kind of thing to a large group of people. Because, like, on a certain level, you're not personally culpable or responsible for the actions of any one individual just because they follow you or like your content or whatever else. But, like, right. also people with that kind of falling have to have the understanding of, like, hey, there are actual serious consequences to you being like, I am going to be publicly correct in the meanest way possible towards this person who is just being a little silly at me.
0: My favorite thing that I do with Ninja Sex Party, so the Ninja Sex Party account has, I can't remember, it's 750-ish thousand followers. Whenever we have a big event or an album or whatever coming out, I will have a get blocked by NSP contest. <laughs> and most of the fans know I run this account. And uh, The band is just two people anyway, so it's like, it's either me or the other guy. So yeah, I'll say, it's a get blocked by NSP contest. Simply reply to this tweet to enter and one lucky winner will be permanently blocked. By this account. And this is not a joke. You will never be unblocked. This is a permanent block. Know what you're getting into. (laughs) And then thousands of people reply in the hopes that they get blocked. I do it like once or twice a year. And I am always shocked by the number of apparently very, very loyal fans who. Desperately want to be blocked for the rest of their (laughs) lifetime on that account. This ninja sex party block fin
2: (laughs) dom situation. Yes, Sadie Wekt, silence me.
0: (laughs) Oh, believe me, it feels like that. Believe me. And I always feel a little bit bad doing it, but I'm a man of my word. And if I say I'm going to block someone forever, then Sorry. Block them forever.
2: I love that. Do they say stuff like genuinely bad, blockable, or are they just like block me or a combination?
0: Yes. So I very rarely give guidance for what to say to be blocked. And so my rule with picking the person to block is first of all, there's a punching up element to it. I'll always check the account. And if someone seems really like lonely, for want of a better word, no way. I'm not going (laughs) to like do that. Mm -hmm. But anyone who is, like, trying to say stuff to, like, you know, be edgy, absolutely not. Trying too hard, no. The only accounts I will block are the people who say nice things uh, in response <laughs> to that. So now I've kind of given it away. But generally speaking, I believe the last one I blocked just said, Ooh, woo, block me, daddy. And I was like, okay.
2: Okay, that that is a blockable
1: offense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love it. <laughs> I try to do stuff like that all the time, and I'm like, hey, can I? And they know immediately. They're like, Rachel, no. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> See, that's also the difference between, you know, it's me running the account for my band and you running this for a much larger organization. Right. So I can afford to, because it's, it's literally my own ass on the line and one other person to take some chances that might otherwise be... Uncool. Yeah,
1: and they love you. Like, they don't know me. It's easy enough right. to paint a picture where there's a blank canvas. If I say something that they don't like, then they will just place the person who they don't like at Smosh in that position. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're like, who are the person who said this? And then they're like, well, well, shit.
0: <laughs> I feel like we would be remiss if we did not discuss some of the paranormal stuff.
2: This is what I was gearing up for, baby. <laughs> yeah.
0: I am just going to shut up for a minute <laughs> and let you two take it. But maybe we can talk about, just to start it somewhere, what was the witching hour thing you did? Because unfortunately, I wasn't able to watch the witching hour. So I'm curious what you did for that show.
1: Here's a fun fact about that is for the witching hour thing, I was supposed to give like a TED talk of sorts about why it's okay to have a favorite serial killer, and why that terminology might feel uncomfortable, but it's actually okay, and I was writing it and I was it was going well, and then I got a big concussion. oh no, what the fuck? Yeah, I got bonked super hard. Oh how'd you get bonked? <laughs> it's so dumb. <laughs> I'm a short gal and, you know, I don't see myself that way. So I was reaching for something and it was way out of my reach. And so I thought that maybe if I hit it and it like bounced against (laughs) the back of the wall and then came at me, I would be able to like get it in that way. And it was a crock pot and it fell on my head. (gasps) Oh no. It was so sad because I was so freaking excited about this thing. Everybody involved is so cool and Vernon was so like, so lovely to put me in touch with these people. I don't know. It was just like shit. And I texted Vernon and I was like, I'm so sorry, but I do also have 200 hours of content that I could give you.
0: But you're okay. You're okay now. I
1: have so many concussions. It's wild. (laughs) (laughs) How many concussions are we talking? I think now I'm at seven. (laughs) What? Yeah. I told you got the face a million times.
0: I have never been concussed. I've never had a concussion.
2: Neither have I. Oh, my God. Check it out.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it sounds amazing.
2: Well, I have an Instant Pot on top of my fridge. I could just give that cord a little yank and then (laughs) bunk.
1: But yeah, I I don't know which one I did. It was a serial killer one, right? Oh, my God. Yes. Was this Carl Panzram, my favorite serial killer? (laughs) Ooh, okay.
2: Love him. That's a fun pull. Also, your segment was great regardless. I didn't know that it was not what you were initially intending to do until like now.
1: (laughs) That makes me very happy. Yeah, I think I did Carl Panzram, who's this very, very, very interesting serial killer. He was part of the penal system as a child, like a child child. He was caught stealing an apple and some whiskey at age nine. So he went to jail for the first time. And then from there was sent to like a boy's finishing school where he just got beat up. Forever, he ended up lighting the school on fire and then tuck and rolling out of there, and then just continuously was like in and out of. And this is the 1890s, so just imagine how cool he is, you know? <laughs> I can't remember what president, but it was the president of the United States at the time. He stole his boat and his gun. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, and he just made his way like overseas internationally, and he was such a menace to America that they were literally like. Just let him go. <laughs> and they did. And he, oh, he hated men so much. He came back from overseas just to be like, I did take your boat and I did take your gun and
0: I'm going to kill
2: people with it. And he did.
0: Fuck. Wow. Wait, he killed people with the president's gun? Yeah, he sure did.
2: That sounds like the title of a Johnny Cash song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah.
2: He is a Johnny Cash song. It, it totally is. I don't know as much about him as I know about like other serial killers, but like, If I recall correctly, like, didn't he write his own uh, autobiography or whatever? If you haven't read it, oh. Because he's like a genuinely kind of
1: good writer, right? Very good writer because he was very good at self-expression. He was beat, you know, a lot as a kid if he didn't learn properly. So he was literate. And his autobiography is incredible. The most incredible about it is that the things he talks about are... Like if you heard it from Son of Sam or some other like nebushy like bullshit serial killer.
2: Yeah.
1: Please don't kill me, by the way. Every time I insult a serial killer, I feel like somebody out there is gonna kill me.
0: You know what? I'm giving you permission.
1: <laughs> Thank you. <Yeah.
2: laughs>
0: you're you're okay. Uh
2: controversial opinion, but people who kill other people are kind of bad. Yeah, they're kind of lame. Yeah. I totally agree with that. Yeah. <laughs>
1: But yeah, he made so many wild claims about his criminal activity that were then after his death cross-checked with like public record and where he was imprisoned and where he went to finishing school and stuff like he didn't lie about a single thing, like a single thing. Wow. It's
0: incredible. So, okay. While we're on this topic, tell me your impressions of Mindhunter, if you have seen it.
2: Layton. I enjoyed it. I'm sad that it was canceled. I, I didn't like the second season as much. I thought, especially the stuff with, what is it, Tench's son. Yeah. It was like very ridiculous, but I, I enjoyed the hell out of it. I thought it was super fun.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I thought it was a lot of fun. And it's kind of fun in that way that, like, kind of the way that you described the
2: Overlook Hotel, where you're like, oh, I know him.
0: <laughs> uh-huh. Also, the
2: casting is, like, fantastic on everyone.
0: Casting rules.
2: Yeah. Jonathan Groff
1: does make me want to, like, Actually, just scrape my own eyeballs out. But
0: <laughs> wait, wait, wait! In, in general, or just in yeah. my? Hold on. Are are you not a Kristoff fan?
1: I saw Frozen once, but I was at a house party with this guy, and he had a home movie theater, and I made out with him instead of
2: watching it.
0: That you know what? That sounds a lot that better. That's a good yeah. choice. I thought so too. <laughs> I'm gonna publicly state the first Frozen movie not good. There are some great songs. I found that movie generally pretty bad. Frozen 2, fucking great. Loved every minute of it. <laughs> okay. And the Frozen musical, the play, fantastic. It, like, fixes so many problems with the story in the movie. All these things in the movie where you're like, why the fuck is that happening? Shouldn't they just talk to each other? The stage musical fixes so much of that and adds a few great numbers, too. So, Sorry to go off on my little Frozen tangent here.
2: (laughs) Brian, it's almost like you have a small child who really enjoys Frozen (laughs) and by proxy forces you to enjoy Frozen.
0: It is, but to be fair, I had many of these opinions before I had this child. That was before Frozen too. Also, I will say Tangled is better than Frozen and anyone who thinks otherwise is dumb.
1: Agreed. So. I haven't been either. That's probably good. I just wasn't really a Disney kid. I was a wrestling kid. That's
2: infinitely cooler than being a Disney kid. So kudos to you. <laughs> it is now. Thank <laughs> God. I've been meaning to read the Panzeriam book, and it's interesting that compared to the Pee Wee Gaskins book, which is oof wild.
0: <laughs> I don't know either of these people. I mean, I know the first one now that you've talked about him, but who was Pee Wee Gaskin? When is that person?
1: I always think of him as a henchman, but he really was pretty terrible. He was an American serial killer. He's absolutely insane. He's kind of like um, carny folk. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like literally was part of a traveling fair, I believe. Sometimes serial killers have an MO or um, a fetish or whatever. He just was carnage. Like he ate people, he raped, he killed. Like... He had a little man complex.
0: <laughs> like a, a shorter person?
1: He was little from accounts. According to him, he was not. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean his nickname is Pee-wee. His real name was like Donald Henry Gaskins, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. He was like five five, but no hate out there to my kings, but that's not that
2: short. That's fine.
1: It's not that short. And he was but he was also like around like 120. So he was Mm -hmm. a small guy, but he had that carny strength, that like stringy old man strength.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he had that and was terrifying. And he wrote his own book. He just loved the idea of him as a serial
2: killer, you know? Yeah, the embellishments, 15 confirmed victims, but he claimed that he had killed 110 people. Fuck. And uh, the book is called The Final Truth. Oh my God. (laughs) That's what it was.
0: Rachel, so what is your defense of why it's okay to have a favorite serial killer, the talk you like would have given?
1: Well, it kind of boils down to something very basic, which is colloquialism, which is the fact that if you're talking about something that you're fascinated in, you're probably not going to use the language. I'm incredibly fascinated in X, Y, Z. You're going to say my favorite thing is X, Y, Z. Like you don't have a favorite color. You have memories associated with a color, a color that you think looks best on you or a color that looks best on the wall behind your painting. But you don't have a favorite color like that favorite doesn't really exist exist. So Uh using the word favorite, it's kind of not using a word at all. It's just a function of language to talk about something that you're fascinated in. And it's okay to be fascinated in horrible things because if we don't learn from them and try to understand, as long as like the fascination is behind the why and the buildup, and not really um, the destination. Like, if the fascination is, oh, this man murdered a bunch of people, let me see how he did that, so then I can maybe do that. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> not great, but it's not bad to, to like these things.
0: Basically, you're saying, if I'm understanding, it's okay to be interested in something, and that does not constitute a big, huge moral thumbs up as like, yeah, great job, dude.
1: Yes. Mostly, I just need people to chill. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> somebody says, oh, that's my favorite serial killer. And you come back with like, it's really gross to have a, I don't want really to <laughs> have a conversation.
0: <laughs> it's a willful, often bad faith misunderstanding of how people use words. Yeah. It's right. like the people who say this person died and someone goes, oh, I'm sorry. And then the response is, well, it's not your fault. It's like, no, that's not fucking how you use that word in this context. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, fuck you. Understand context, yes.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it's especially irritating that, like, we have kind of entered this, like, a level of, like, moral puritism around the themes, characters, and narrative events that happen in media as if depiction equals endorsement or, like, your interest in a morbid thing means you are inherently a bad person and that... If you want to be a good person, you can only like consume like quote unquote good quote unquote pure media, which is mm-hmm. that will be the death of media comprehension and it terrifies me that people like kind of subscribe to that to a degree or at least yell at people about that so much online yeah yeah like the
1: death of like human comprehension though like that's like yeah. um. To assume that people are good or to assume that we are supposed to be good. Like, there are fundamental truths. Be kind to the person next to you. Like, don't do anything that you wouldn't, yada, yada. But, like, we're large. We contain multitudes. And Mm -hmm. if you are yelling at me because you think that the thing that I'm interested in is bad, you want me to be a Puritan, like you said. Yeah. I can't be that for you because I'm flawed and, like, I'm also bad sometimes. And maybe... Um, reading about somebody who, like, ate a cat makes me feel better about that time that I ghosted that guy, you know? (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
2: that's very real. I mean, it it feels very, I saw Goody Proctor reading Harold Schechter's Depraved.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking about this recently in the context of political and other polarization. It seems to be a part of this increasing tendency, which people have always done to in-group or out-group people, And you're constantly looking for signs that people are on the wrong side, Mm -hmm. right? And so when people say something that you can easily disagree with, some people's instinct will be like, okay, well, they're on the other side, fuck them. And I'm not even talking about Republican versus Democrat. I'm just talking about in-group, out-group, however you want to define that in whatever context. And so I think part of the culture we are living in now is this constant quest to find whether people are in your in-group or your out-group. And I feel like this hair trigger, like, oh, you have a favorite serial killer, so you endorse. It's like, no, no, okay, just calm down. I'm not your enemy here. I'm just saying a thing I like. I think people are very, very quick to immediately try to figure out which side of this Uh, generally pretty fluid line other people are on.
1: And I feel like mainly it's just a projection. Oh, yeah. Yeah. People just really want either so badly to be right or to not be wrong. Whenever I get a defensive response from somebody, I understand that it's because it's something that I'm saying that's making them feel that they need to prove that they're right to me. Mm -hmm. So like, how can we meet in the middle, I guess? But... Yeah, I mean, I think if people get better at projection, they'll get a lot better at not projecting. They'll get better at empathy in humans.
2: Yeah, and like understanding transference and like, oh, I'm having a disproportionately strong emotional reaction to this thing. I don't think it is because of the content. It is because it, you know, touches this insecurity I have or like a situation that I've been in. And it's like, it's never about the thing. It's about how it made them feel that you cannot possibly have the context for And obviously we're all trying to have that like level of empathy and compassion to understand like, oh yeah, this thing might upset a lot of people. It's a two-way street, right? Like you want mm-hmm. the, the audience to see that and take it in good faith, hopefully, and like understand your perspective in the same way that you're trying to be empathetic towards somebody who's yelling at you, at you to a degree, because it's very easy with this like in-group, out-group thing to otherize the other side because it dehumanizes them and that enables further cruelty and othering.
1: Yeah.
0: Yes. As far as I'm concerned, first instinct should always be to humanize. Think about that other person. Think about who they are. Sometimes people do horrible shit that you can't tolerate and that's fine. Like, you should not be tolerating racist or whatever, you know, like, bad shit. 99% of what people get mad about on the internet has nothing to do with legitimately bad shit. It's just like, oh, you don't think BTS is the best band that's ever existed in the history of the world? <laughs> well, now you can go fuck yourself. and I'm going to dance and spit on your grave. You know, it's like, okay, come on. This is not a proportional response.
2: I had just start doing this like litmus test when I was getting really upset about like specific online drama. I've never really even been involved in drama. I've gotten yelled at a lot, but I, you know, I don't engage in it or start shit. But like, explaining the situation to somebody who is extremely not online and, like, within (laughs) 20 seconds realizing that you sound like you've lost your entire mind. And that's when it's like, okay, I'm getting upset about this. This is stupid. I don't need to worry about this. It's fine.
0: Yes.
1: Have you ever tried to describe Trisha
2: Paytas to somebody? No, because I don't know enough
0: about her. I don't even know who this is.
2: Okay. Give us the explainer. Let's go. No, God, no.
1: No, no. (laughs) She in such a beautiful world right now, and why the hell would I ruin that? Okay, great. Uh, I am consumed by her. And for a lot of reasons, like, not only because, like, what she presents to the world is absolutely batshit insane. Like, she has offended so many people in the past year. Like she said that she identified as trans. Then she said that she had DID, like disassociative identity Ooh. disorder. Then, yeah. She said she identified as a chicken nugget. And like, she does identify as non-binary. So I don't want to take that trans thing away from her, but she did upset a lot of people in the community because of the way she presented it, whatever. But she's a 33 year old woman currently in drama with a 16 year old girl Because the 16-year-old girl didn't like escargot. What? It was trending on Twitter worldwide on Friday. What?
0: This is the kind of thing, when I tell my friends who are my age that I'm a YouTuber, this is the kind of shit that they think I do. (laughs) And I'm like, no, I make music videos where I dress up in a ninja costume. (laughs) I'm not getting involved in drama about snails with people half my age.
2: Honestly, snail drama. You say snail drama, and I'm not imagining this horrible As Cargo situation. I'm just like, oh, is this scientist arguing about like the minutiae of of snail shell differences? I'm
0: looking at her Wikipedia now. I am surprised I've never heard of her.
1: Made 76 TikToks in one day, just about this one 16-year-old girl. Okay, you know what?
0: I I don't want to disillusion you, but you know what I'm not going to do? That? (laughs) Yes, that exact thing. I'm not going to look at her TikTok.
2: Pretty much the only thing I had known about her prior to now is I've only ever seen pictures of her, like, crying.
1: Yeah. (laughs) This is why we don't engage in drama on the internet.
2: Yeah. Yes. And it's so bad for your mental health. Like, I can barely stand, like, one person being kind of pissy at me. And, like, I've experienced the full wave of a whole bunch of people being really more than pissy at you. But just like, I got shit to do, you know, like I'm an adult. Yeah. I, you know, have like a SEP IRA. Like I don't need <laughs> to get into a fight with a 16 year old.
1: <laughs> I got into some Twitter drama. I guess it was a couple years ago now because I was in this BuzzFeed video where they handcuffed me to a Christian because (laughs) there was a period of like two to three years where I was like the Satanist on YouTube. I was like the one who had all the information. I like was in with the Church of Satan and stuff. And like, I'm not a Satanist.
0: (laughs) No, come on. But also like from what I understand, I know very little about this. Modern Satanists, it's generally like, oh, here are some pretty cool people. Like, it's fun.
1: It's super fun. And that's the thing. Satanism, the reason why I love it so much and currently do love it is because it's meant to elicit that reaction from people. Right. It is an institutional troll. Like, literally, the point of Satanism is to be adverse to and not in yes. like a, um annoying way, but in, well, sometimes, you know, it can get there. Yeah, but sometimes annoying. <laughs> it definitely can get there. There are a lot of gatekeepers. Yeah,
0: the gates of hell.
1: So you yeah. get it. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> It's about taking people's um, idea and rituals and turning them on their head, using it against them to kind of use language that they understand. So there is no devil. like There is no Satan. That's theism. And Satanism doesn't believe in a theistic God, therefore cannot believe in a devil. But they use the idea of Baphomet and use the idea of the devil to elicit a reaction in people who would Consider themselves
0: so. It's basically a bunch of weird, cool, iconoclasts who kind of want to get on other people's nerves.
1: Yeah, it's just people who think that they are their own universe, and what you see is what you get,
2: and kind of just want to party.
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. Satanist party. I recommend a lot of self help books to people just because I've read a lot of them, and you know, years of therapy, etc. I like helping people be like. Oh, my shit's fucked. I can do something about this. Anyway, the number one that I recommend is the Satanic Bible because it literally hits all the beats of like every single self-help thing of like, identify toxic people in your life, get rid of them, empower yourself, all this shit. But then it's like, (laughs) ooh, Satan, like nuns are sexy. (laughs) I have sent so many copies of Satanic Bibles to people because the mass market paperback is like five bucks. And it's like, this is a worthy investment. And then you can put it on your coffee table and make your grandmother angry.
1: Exactly. I have a Satanic Bible in every room in my house, but I also highly suggest the Satanic witch. I also own this one. Yes. Wonderful. Is anybody who's dealing with any sort of like sexual issues or like sexual confidence issues? I mean, you know, not like EDs. You can't sigil that away, but... <laughs> there's definitely like some cool points to take from it. I kind of got the same um, feeling when I read the Satanic Bible. I got the same feeling from, this is so lame and I'm sorry, from Leaves of Grass. Oh. Oh.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, where it's like the whole thing is just him breaking off pieces of himself and like giving it to trees and giving it to Mm. the world and stuff like that. And like with Satanism, that's kind of how I see it too, where it's just like you're, part of everything around you, but like there's something about it that's so connective to me, but also like recognizing that like I am my own person and I'm capable of making my own decisions and I can respect and even like admire your decisions while continuing to make my own.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's great.
2: Do you get much into the overlap with like chaos magic stuff? Oh my God. I've done a few videos on chaos magic.
0: I don't even know what it is.
2: Basically just the secret, but like metal. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but with art.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Because I really don't like The Secret. Will I like chaos magic?
2: Rachel, you would probably explain this better than I would, but it's like picking and choosing the pieces of other, you know, quote unquote magic, like doctrines, and using them in however you choose. It's like DIY ritual.
0: (laughs) Okay, great. Yeah. The thing I reject about The Secret is the, like, you get what you deserve kind of thing.
1: No, there's no such thing as like deserve and chaos magic. It's more about manifestation, which I dig. I don't think that if you charge some crystals and think about it real hard, you're going to get that house, you know? You're correct. Yeah. But I do also have bad brain syndrome where I uh, sometimes think that maybe we are living in a simulation or like maybe part of our life is holographic.
0: That is a philosophically tenable position. Right. So that is a legit philosophical question, if not a physics question. Yeah.
2: (laughs) You found your physics in.
0: (laughs) It is a legitimate question that some physicists I know discuss. So asking, are we living in a simulation? I mean, it's unlikely that we are. I've heard people argue about this one way or the other because of basically the resolution you would need to live in a simulation. The computational power is like bigger than if the entire universe was a computer or something like that. Anyway, it's not an obviously silly question. Are we living in a simulation? That's something that very smart people debate and have interesting opinions about.
1: I don't think technology can make the world that we live in. But what kind of like messes me up more than that is like particle physics and the idea of quantum entanglement.
0: Oh, Rachel. (laughs) So I I don't know if you know this about me, but before I left to do music and comedy, I was a professor of theoretical physics.
1: Oh my God.
0: Yes. So ask me your questions about physics and entanglement.
1: Okay. So for the past four months... I have been reading lectures, watching, do you know Brian Cox? I do, yes. Yeah, so I've been watching like his lectures and trying to just collect as much information as I can get my puny little brain around. And the more I think about it, the less I understand, which I understand is a like kind of fun way to exist and it's how I prefer to exist. But I mean, I'm nothing but questions. I couldn't ask you a question. I am questioned. <laughs> well,
0: let me just say this. I've seen a lot of very good Brian Cox stuff. I've seen a lot of less good Brian Cox stuff where I feel like he is, especially he has some video about entanglement that I really, really don't like because I feel like it's a gross overstatement. Is it the Doctor Who one? It's something he's looking at a crystal and he says everything is connected to the universe. It bugs me.
1: Okay. I'm just kind of exploring this on my own.
0: Yeah. The thing I'm going to say, and it's not what most people want to hear, but it is the truth, which is that- It's impossible to understand this stuff without learning the math and getting into it. And no amount of videos or Mm -hmm. popular books on entanglement and quantum physics and particle physics, you will never understand it. So it's not that you can't kind of get close to it, but at its heart, there is a mathematical theory that admittedly has some very interesting questions of interpretation and things like that that you can argue about all you like. But... I'm not saying that you can't understand it. What I'm saying is that the reason you have so many questions is because the level of precision necessary to really understand it is just simply not present in the stuff you're watching. And no matter how many words Brian Cox or whoever uses to describe it is ultimately going to boil down to, okay, that's not enough. Here's the equation you need.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: That's not a weakness on your part, is what I'm telling you, is the fact that you don't understand it based on watching a bunch of videos, it has no reflection on your ability whatsoever. It is the fact that ultimately there is a mathematical formulation that's the right way to talk about it, and words, it's not that it's the wrong way, but it's a very, very incomplete picture.
1: It just doesn't feel like something that can be put into layman's terms, and it feels like all I'm getting is layman's terms.
0: (laughs) That's 100% correct. And the other thing I was going to say is even once you put it in math language, there's still arguments people have about it and what it means. Yeah. I want to recommend a book to you that I think you're really going to like. It's called What is Real? It's by Adam Becker, who's a friend of mine. Okay. He is a science writer, and he basically talks about the question of – interpretations of quantum mechanics. And basically the whole point of the book is the interpretation of quantum mechanics that you're taught when you study physics for the first time as an undergraduate, which is that things can be kind of anywhere and then you measure them and they like fall down to one, you know, whatever you measured. Mm -hmm. The conventional interpretation of that that you're taught is totally wrong and everybody fucking knows it. And the real story is very complicated and is not well understood and is still an active question of research by physicists and philosophers of physics. So there's a lot of very complicated stuff here that physicists still don't understand too well, but ultimately it's all going to come back to math.
1: So here's where I struggle is that it feels like the most important thing in my world. (laughs) Right. Feels like something that I can't let go of. My dad's a botanist, so like science has been in my ether. And when I was a kid, I wanted to do science and whatever. I'm doing this.
0: (laughs) Yeah, same.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's just this thing where I'm like, do I stop everything in my entire life and go learn these equations? No. Okay. Because <laughs> I'm at an impasse. I'm like, I- point where I'm like, I can't know anymore at the level of things that I know. I'm definitely going to read this book and I will take any other suggestions that you have. Cause like I've read scholarly articles that I don't understand, which is why I end up reverting back to the Brian Coxes of the world where I'm like, okay, you speak, I can understand what you speak.
0: Yeah. I would say even if you stopped everything and then learn A, the math. I don't know what your math level is, but you need at least multivariable calculus to do it.
1: I just have one variable calculus.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So you need generally more than one, although one is actually fine, but you need complex numbers and everything like that. There's a lot of math background and then a lot of physics background. That is something that people typically spend, you know, like an undergraduate education learning. So call it four years. Mm -hmm. And then once you really get into it, that's like more of a graduate thing. And then people who do this for a living still don't really understand it. So people love to say, no one really understands quantum mechanics. No, come on. It's not true. There are certain points in quantum mechanics that still are debated, but the basic mechanisms are, are pretty well understood at this point. So I know you're being probably a little bit glib, but I'm going to treat it like it's a totally serious question.
1: Only oh you
0: know? No, no, right. But if the question is, should you drop everything and learn it? I'm going to tell you right now, no, because I actually did drop everything and learn it. I mean, this was my job. I was a researcher in theoretical physics. Mm -hmm. And this was exactly the kind of stuff where I was like, oh, fuck, I'm never going to understand that. So, (laughs) I I am certainly not imputing your intellectual ability in any sense, but it's really hard shit that even pros in the field don't understand super well. So, I don't think it's worth your time to like drop everything and do it.
1: That's actually (laughs) more comforting because I pull my own hair out just trying to wrap my brain around these things. And not only that, there are aspects of it that I take into my job, like not my Smosh job, that would be insane. (laughs) But like Paranormal Caught on Camera, the travel channel show where there are instances of like, spontaneous manifestation of like apparitions and stuff like that, where I'm like, well, is it possible that we're seeing some sort of teleportation? And then that makes me want to try to get into that. And then if I even touch it, it becomes like a nesting doll. I can't get to the center.
0: I'll tell you right away the answer to, is it possible it's some kind of teleportation? The answer is no.
2: Come on, Brian, live a (laughs)
0: little. I will recommend a book to you. It's called How the Hippies Saved Physics. It's by David Kaiser, who's a very, very good science writer. And it is basically about how the quest by a bunch of weirdos in Berkeley in the 60s to try to explain psychic phenomena using quantum mechanics led to questioning a lot of very fundamental assumptions of quantum and kind of led to what we think of as modern quantum computing. And oh, I love that these were people who were asking exactly this question, like, can we use entanglement and other things to try to prove that, you know, whatever, telepathy exists. It's going to come as a shock that they did nothing of the sort. But basically, in asking the questions, they had to restate and revise a bunch of assumptions and try to really get into the structure of what they were thinking about. So the book's thesis is a little bit strong for my personal tastes. Like these people basically invented modern quantum computing. Probably not. But at the very least, it is a super interesting story with a lot of amazing characters, including a murderer. (gasps) Yes.
2: (laughs) Oh my God. So I wanted to circle back around because Rachel, you were saying that in response to kind of segueing into chaos magic stuff. And I was really curious about where you were going with that.
1: Oh, right. It does kind of comfort me to a certain degree that I can't understand this stuff because it does make it a little bit more more romantic in a way. Like when the CIA declassified these documents saying that it's possible that we could be experiencing some sort of like global hologram or that the idea that a hologram could exist and that we are existing inside of it.
0: I have so many things to say and I'm really holding back right now, so.
1: I'm actually (laughs) dying to know though because I don't understand it. I don't get it. (laughs) All I know is that a lady like 10 years ago had brain surgery and half of the hemisphere of her brain was gone. And they did something to convince the other hemisphere that it was still there. And she is existing with a full brain because of holograms. So I need to understand why, (laughs)
2: please...
0: Well, I don't want to hijack this whole conversation since Leighton literally just steered us away from physics and then we got right back into it.
2: I know. I'm sorry. It's okay. No, I'm fascinated by this and I'm shutting the fuck up because I feel like I am listening to a podcast that I'm very interested in and I don't have intelligent input. So like, go off.
0: So theoretical physicists have a kind of specific thing they mean when they say hologram. And it is not a hologram. It is a way of encoding higher-dimensional things in a lower-dimensional space. So, for example, there's a very famous what's called duality in string theory called ADS-CFT. I don't really want to get into it, Um, but it basically says a 10-dimensional string theory is equivalent to a four-dimensional, basically, particle theory. Uh, And part of that 10-dimensional theory is a five-dimensional thing which the four-dimensional theory lives on the boundary of. So for example, if you have a three-dimensional space, you, I don't know, wrap part of it in a ball or a sphere or whatever, then you have a two-dimensional boundary, right, surrounding a three-dimensional space. Basically, the boundary of something is usually one dimension lower than the space it's in. Does that make sense? Yeah. Cool. So there is a way of encoding information about what's going on in the interior of a space just on the boundary of that space. And it's like saying you have a two-dimensional thing, a hologram, which encodes information about a three-dimensional image, right? So that's why it's called holography, because you have all the information of a higher-dimensional space stuck to a lower-dimensional space. So when people say, do we live in a hologram, that's really what they mean is – and this is actually famously true for black holes, too – Uh, a lot of the information about a black hole is kind of stuck to the the event horizon because you can't see inside the surface of a black hole. So there are all these questions about, do we live in a world where we can just sort of talk about the boundary of the space and encode all the information there about what's going on in the interior. And that's when people say holography in a theoretical physics context, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about information stuck to boundaries of spaces.
1: But how is that any less cool?
0: It's not. It's awesome. (laughs) It's super cool. I spent a lot of my career actually studying this idea of holography and the equivalence between 10-dimensional string theories and four-dimensional particle physics.
1: Oh, God. We will talk about this more because I'm just so fascinated. I'm curious if there's anything that I can read that would make sense to me more about that.
0: There are a couple of good Brian Greene books not the Elegant Universe, because that's too old. That was before this idea came out. Here's one about the multiverse, which might have this kind of stuff in it. I can't remember the name of it.
1: Yeah, and that's what a uh, Kel Segway. <laughs> that's kind <laughs> of the principle of that idea of multiverse, of the idea that we could potentially manifest our own universe through some sort of like, I guess, in the way that you just described it, inscribing our own information into the hologram. <laughs>
0: When people say multiverse, they're talking about something very, very different than that, typically.
1: Right, right, right. The way that I understand it, which I'm sure is wrong, is just that there's a world of possibilities, and inside of each possibility, there's another world.
0: That's not too far from the truth in an infinite universe. Yeah. If anything that's not impossible will happen an infinite number of times, because that's what infinite means.
1: And it's all happening at the same time.
0: Well, that idea of happening at the same time doesn't exist. Oh, in okay. No, because Einstein taught us that simultaneity is not a valid concept because it depends on your frame of reference. So two events that you see happening at the same time, someone moving relative to those events, especially very close to the speed of light, will not see happening at the same time. So any relative motion changes how your clock works compared to someone else's clock.
1: I sit on the couch a lot, so I'm going to live for a long time, right? Exactly.
0: Let's put it this way. If someone is moving very quick relative to you. hmm they will think you live for a very long time.
1: Oh my God. Amazing. My friend Tony <laughs> is very active. Yeah. He's always judging me for not getting a Peloton. And now I'm going to be like, well, <laughs> you're a
2: So what about it? And
0: that's just science.
2: <laughs> yeah. So wait, Brian, you're telling me time is fake?
0: Time is a flat circle is what I'm saying.
2: Time is a
1: flat circle. Yeah. <laughs> but through the show that I'm doing on the Travel Channel, I've really opened my mind up to exploring these concepts and uh-huh. not that, as we've explored, not that I really understand them in any other way than just I'm sitting on a couch and reading about them, but just making my brain work in that way helps me validate chaos magic. I will not be a pooper here, but like, even if everything's fake, even if chaos magic is fake, even if Satanism is fake, even if love is fake, whatever, I know that like, the theories that I'm reading about and that I'm learning about, and I'm learning that the world isn't what I know it to be and I never will understand it. And within that there's a lot of freedom because you can kind of paint your own reality. And like, it doesn't mean that like, because I have a sigil on my fridge (laughs) and I've had the same sigil on my fridge for the past five years and it's worked. Do I, think that it's because of that sigil, I don't know, but it is a physical representation of my intention in that. Yeah. And as soon as that goes away for me, like, it becomes less part of my world. Oh, yeah. Especially because I have your
2: ADHD. Hey.
0: There's a very important thing, which is if it works for you, great. Do it.
2: Yeah. That's what's fun about Chaos Magic to me because it is totally, like, upfront about, like, you can believe in this to whatever level you want to believe in this. You can pick and choose like what works for you because it's about like, whether you think doing like this ritual or creating this sigil for yourself, whether you think that that will like genuinely manifest in a way that is beyond your control or which is like, this is more the perspective I look at it through is just like, there is power in human ritual. Like there is a reason that we do it, whatever the effect is it's like you are setting that intention and by kind of like enacting this ritualistic thing, you are like coding it into your brain. And for me, it's like a self-motivation, like Mm self-empowerment thing. And I mean, that's what's cool about it because it can be whatever you want it to be. Fuck, what's the name of the book? null and Psychonaut. That's the one I'm thinking of. I have like
1: the boring ones. Like I have ones that are like hyper-informational and just (laughs) are like, here's how to make a schedule.
0: Yeah, and it's not like what kind of heart surgery should we do on this person? Let's use chaos magic. I think that stuff is great. Yeah. As much of a scientist as I am, I really do believe if it's working for you and if it's just how you're living your life, great. I think that's awesome
1: yeah hard time with self-meditation too me too I tend to be hyper pragmatic I tend to be very data driven and very task oriented like yeah. I'm not an open world player I'm very much like a Mario Kart and not Zelda uh-huh. so like I need objectives and tasks and I feel that my brain is always in that mode so huh with stuff like chaos magic it really forces me to like look inside of myself and be like what do i want uh-huh. what am i working towards like not just achieving goal goal because i could That's do quiet. that for the rest of my life like why am i doing this and what does it mean about me how will this change me the thing is About chaos magic and like setting intentions, too. It's never like I want, it's I will have, or I'm going to have, or something like that, because you can want whatever you want. Uh Yeah. Wanting is a very passive thing, but like saying I will be this thing, there is a certain level of manifestation. Like, even just if you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, I will have a good day, that's lame but you've set that intention for yourself and it's only up to
2: you to disappoint yourself in that. It's like sexy cognitive behavioral therapy, basically. (laughs) SCBT. (laughs) But it is sort of like you through like that repetition and like, you know, catching yourself doing the like, this is a basic thing, but like the negative self-talk, like, I'm a fucking idiot. You have to start like catching it and changing it. And by doing that, like intention focused, like, no, I will have a good day. I will be kind to myself today. Like, you just trick your brain into doing it. So even on that base level, like, you're doing CBT. But everything else is like, you just make it a little sexy and fun, and you draw a sigil, you light some candles, you do your little incantation, like, fuck yeah, you feel good about it. It codes it into your brain as like, all right, I have made, like, a tangible commitment to this idea or this want or this willingness to get to know a different part of myself.
0: Yeah, I think that's great. All right, so since we have already spoken for so long and have had a bunch of recommendations. We are going to skip what's popping this week. Uh, Rachel, the main thing you're missing from this is a truly incredible theme song.
2: Hold on. No, 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 Brian, give me this one thing. We're not talking about the bit that shall not be named. We're not doing it.
0: I'm not doing any bits. I'm just telling Rachel she missed a great theme song. I'm not doing a, why would you think I was doing a bit, Layton? <laughs> what what bit no. are you referring to? I don't even know a bit. I know a thing that. I'm personally excited about that I am proud of, which is some music that I wrote that we're not going to hear this week. Because nobody ever hears it! That is manifestly untrue. The fans hear it every week. (laughs) Layton gets very upset about this for some reason. I really don't understand it.
2: Don't gaslight me, Brian. (laughs) (laughs) Rest of you have listened to 40 episodes of this shit. I have suffered enough.
0: I'm just saying that we're not doing what's popping this week. Layden, it's okay. I understand you're upset we're not doing the bit.
2: Right now, I'm drawing a sigil. I'm repurposing (laughs) the letters of, Brian, please shut the fuck up, into a symbol. I'm gonna burn it. And I'm not saying you should be worried, but.
0: Oh, I can guarantee you that sigil will not work. I guarantee you. Well, let me just say, if that sigil worked, my wife would have learned it by now. (laughs) Um, So the bit we are doing is, Layden,
2: peaches and lemons, which is a gratitude exercise that I stole from my family, where we will each go around and we will talk about three things that we're excited about, grateful for. They can be super petty or they can be super deep, whatever. Mine are always petty. I have identified this. guest come on and they're like, I'm really grateful for my family and just like the really supportive people who support me. And I'm just like, I got a keyboard. I got a new keyboard. Anyway, so it it, it can be whatever you want it to be. But basically, we started this show like two months before the pandemic hit, for real.
0: It was like late January, yeah.
2: Yeah, and so we initially were doing lemons, and then we stopped because we were like, okay, there's too much negativity. And then the promise was, if Biden wins in Biden's America, we'll have lemons again. Um, Mm. Thus, now, before we do the nice stuff, we will each go around and share a lemon, which is just simply a petty grievance, because I feel like everyone needs to rant about petty things every once in a while. Peaches and Peaches and Shoot a lemon in my face right now, Brian.
0: You know, we, we've been taking the pandemic very seriously, as uh, I know many people are. And tomorrow, I have to go to fucking Whole Foods the day before Thanksgiving to pick up a turkey. And its I scheduled it for eight in the morning, literally when they first opened, so I wouldn't have to be around crowds because there's nothing more terrifying than a bunch of rich people at Whole Foods the day before Thanksgiving.
2: In that parking lot, (laughs) am I right, (laughs) Angelinos?
0: The point is that I have to go to a Whole Foods tomorrow and I am not excited about what I might find awaiting me at eight o'clock in the morning, the day before Thanksgiving. The single most aggressive environment I have ever been in, ever, in my life, (laughs) was the Whole Foods in Venice, California, uh, where I saw a bunch of clearly very rich, very white people being very mad about <laughs> complete bullshit. Nut butter. Yeah, oh my God. It, I was just like, dude, I don't need to watch you yell at your wife on the phone while you're pushing a shopping cart through the aromatherapy aisle. It's like, come down, buddy. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Brian, I don't understand why you don't do the easier thing, which is be out of groceries and then simply just walk to the liquor store and purchase 48 hours worth of cup of noodles and like a Kit Kat,
0: <laughs> yeah. which
2: is like likely what I'm doing for Thanksgiving.
0: All right, that's my lemon.
2: <laughs> Rachel, do you have a lemon? I got a big lemon.
1: Oy vey, y'all. Mm, okay. Oh, I started dating this guy. It was going very well. We didn't hang out and I made him get COVID tested. I feel like I have to say this because like the world, Uh but before he hung out, I made him get COVID tested every time I saw him. Like it was like a very good relationship or whatever it was. And we were seeing each other for like a month. And you
0: started dating during pandemic.
1: We did. Okay. Yeah, but I knew him beforehand. Mm. I don't meet new people. (laughs) I can't, I'm not good at it. I'm not a good texter and I'm not cute. So (laughs) I can't, Be like, it's time to flirt. Like, you have to know that I'm flirting with you from anecdotal experience. Uh, You know
0: what? I've been married for 13 years. That was me. Like, it was an imperceptible brand of flirting that did not exist. It would not have registered on any meter and did myself absolutely zero favors in ever dating anyone (laughs) because... No one could ever tell that I like them.
1: I struggle with that a lot. Recently, somebody told me that we hung out like six years ago and he was like, I really wanted to date you. And I was like, I wanted to date you too. And he's like, I thought you hated me. I was like, very good. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I I started dating this guy and it was going really well. He like was really great. And then all of a sudden, like a month later, and this happened like mm, uh, last week he stops texting me and all of his texts go green. And I'm like, holy shit, this guy died. Um, (sighs) And then I was like, oh, no, no, no. I'm being
0: ghosted.
1: Uh. And then seven days later, after I send a text, by the way, the last text exchange we have, I text him and I'm like, hey, uh, what's up? And he's like, what are you doing tonight? And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm busy. What are you doing in three days? He never texts me back. I get a text last week. Saying, sorry, I walked to Arizona. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
0: How
1: am I supposed to find love like this? Tell me. What <laughs> was there any elaboration here? No, if there is some, I don't have it. He said he walked to Arizona, but he's back now if I'd like to hang out. And I said, what? No! (laughs) Who are you? Like, what is that? So, yeah, you know, uh, that's my lemon.
2: (laughs) What a nightmare. Uh, Rachel, we need to hang out outside of this podcast so we can talk about serial killers and also dating. (laughs) Oh, I would love that. It's all that is in my brain. Because personally, I'm a dumpster fire hanging out with several serial killers and also men who love to ghost me, so... Oh, great. We have so much in common.
0: (laughs) In my mind, like he started walking from LA, put by the time I get to Arizona by public enemy on a loop.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I'm trying to think of like the dumbest, at least for me, like dumbest made up slash questionable reasons that I've been ghosted, or it's just like, I'm going to talk to you until 4am every night and then suddenly just peace out and then come back four weeks later or something. uh, Let's see. I got, there was one that was like, I was in the hospital, which I never verified. I've gotten several, I was in the hospital with no elaboration about Uh. why. Uh, One guy said he was doing quote unquote witch shit. uh, And then the most LA one I've gotten was um, I'm busy working on my screenplay. Oh, I've gotten that. I've gotten that. Hey. (laughs) Also, as somebody working on a screenplay, like, bitch, (laughs) that's the weakest excuse. Writing a screenplay is, I'm not going to say it's easy, but you're writing a screenplay, bro.
0: You know what? All I can say to that is if you're currently writing, you're getting practice at writing so you can write a text. Like, you should be theoretically better at writing because you've been writing so much.
1: (laughs) Yes. Let me you with your screenplay you can practice in my phone please
2: (laughs) you could practice by taking 30 seconds to text a person who's like interested in you and is flirting with you and hitting on you and stuff but all right
1: yeah I've been so oblivious to it too where somebody's like I have to write my pilot and I've been like oh I'd love to read it sometime and my friend was like
2: dude uh uh no I don't think oh no (laughs) There are a few things less erotic than reading somebody that you're interested in's work. Like, it's always a gamble where, like, it takes a long time for me to get the courage to be like, can I read it? Because how do I put this delicately? Sometimes men's writing is the biggest boner killer in the world. And then it's like, oh, no, what have I done? This is the most Seinfeldian reason for me to, like, not be into this. But dear God, learn to use a semicolon.
0: It's just hard to read stuff from people you like, regardless in what capacity. Like reading something a friend writes, that is a loaded proposition in almost any context, unless you have a really, really solid relationship. It's tough to read shit your friends write, especially if you really like them.
2: Yeah. I can't think of anything more sexy than somebody who absolutely refuses to look at my work at all. This Maybe this is why I keep getting ghosted because that is my taste in men. I
1: could not agree with you more. I had to take every job I have out of my dating profile.
2: Dude, same. I'm
1: like, I don't want you to listen to me talk about Henry Lucas before you talk to me, you know?
0: (laughs) This is one of the great things about when I was a physicist dating a comedian, my wife, because she never had to read my papers. And like, great. I never had to get feedback on creative stuff from someone I loved. Yeah. Do
1: you do that now?
0: I do not. So I, I do show her the stuff I'm working on. And because we have slightly different senses of humor, her default reaction is the classic comedian reaction, which is, "Well, oh, that's funny. And then you're <laughs> like, is it? I don't think. So my wife, whose name is also Rachel, is a comedy genius. And she is hands down the funniest person I know by quite a long shot. Long stretch, or whatever that expression is. And so I really, really value her opinion. But we also have different comedic sensibilities. And so it's very hard for me to square, okay, this is the funnest person I know whose opinion I value basically more than anyone else's. And I have to ignore what she thinks about this because it's not for her and she's not the person I'm trying to make laugh with this. So nearly every song from my band with one or two exceptions, she listens to, acknowledges its presence, says, that's oh, good, and then moves on. Healthy. <laughs> <Okay>. Yeah. So <laughs> Layton, did you do a lemon?
2: Oh, okay. So as you can hear, I have a nice podcasting mic. I have a little scarlet focus right, whatever the fuck. Why is Zoom, Discord, Zencaster, everything. Such a goddamn challenge to connect audio because almost every other Discord call that I'm on, everyone's like, Leighton, you sound like a robot. It's like, the setup is hundreds of dollars and I can't get on a Discord (laughs) call without, you know, just sounding like I'm in an Apex Twin track. Like,
0: By the way, you keep cutting out when you're saying this. (laughs) (laughs) No, you don't. Don't listen to him. Brian,
2: that's so fucking mean. That's so ridiculously mean. I couldn't help it. It's such a devastating, especially now during the pandemic, where it's like the one lifeline you have, like that feeling of helplessness when you're on the call and like you hear everybody go like, oh, no, I think we lost late. And I'm just like, I'm here. I love you. I'm sorry. It's the worst. (laughs) Just like unplugging things angrily, plugging them back in, popping onto the call, being like, can you hear me? And then they say no. And then you just yell, fuck, again. And it just like, is that every fucking time? So, hey, folks listening, if you have problems with Discord, and apparently it's like a documented thing with like Focusrite Scarlet shit. Oh. If you know how to fix this, please tell me.
0: Cool. Let's fire out some peaches. I'm just going to slam through mine real fast. Do it. Number one, Thanksgiving is two days from now. And I love Thanksgiving. I'm very excited about it. The best holiday by any stretch because it has no religious overtones. It is just hanging out with people and eating food. So very excited for Thanksgiving. Number two, I've been playing Hyrule Warriors Age of Calamity with my daughter, Audrey. And the fact that you can play as Zelda caused her to fall over (laughs) while we were playing this game. (laughs) So Zelda basically uses her Sheikah Slate as a weapon and conjures runes, and uses Zelda magic. And the fact that she can just blow shit up left and right. I mean, Audrey literally, like, lost her mind and started running around the room screaming, you can play as Zelda, <laughs> Zelda, you can play as Zelda, you uh, can play as Zelda. And it's very, very cute. God, and That's
2: amusing. And
0: I'm not being facetious when I say this. This is why representation matters. Like,
2: mm-hmm.
0: because she can play as a powerful female character and that is the most important thing in the world to her.
2: I'm sorry that I just said amusing instead of amazing. No, that's fine. <laughs> like, like I'm belittling this like beautiful, incredible thing that is like so validating.
0: But it is funny too, because you're like, okay, like, yes, that's very cool. Now let's just calm down. No, you can play as Elta Blah Blah, mommy, you can play as out. Like, and we haven't even gotten to the part where you can play as Urbosa, so... uh. We'll see what happens. Oh,
2: my God. Oh, I'm excited for this shit.
0: Yes. It's going to be very fun. So right now we can do Link, Impa, and Zelda, which are the first three playable characters. And I can't quite figure out Impa, but Zelda is going great. And finally, this is going to sound like a plug, and I really don't mean it to be. Forever, we've been trying to get Ninja Sex Party face masks made so we can sell them. And it took, like, literally six months to get them done because everyone's ordering face masks. (laughs) Uh, And we finally put them out today. So you can wear a face mask, which has my eyes on your mouth, which is the horror. Yeah, it's very upsetting. But I think people are going to like
2: it. I love that. You're promoting public health and personal responsibility, a thing that I wish more people would do and understand. And
0: we all know this. I'm going to say it out loud. We haven't said it on this podcast. The mask goes over your nose. The mask goes over your nose. Your mask goes over your nose. Anyway, those are my peaches. Beautiful. Rachel?
1: My first peach is that I got an air fryer. (laughs) Oh,
0: oh my God. I love my air fryer. It was a Christmas gift last year. I don't want to steal your thunder. I love my air fryer. That's all I'm going to say.
1: Join me in this joy because I agree. I got it just as like, oh, I saw this. Okay. Like I walked past it because I had to go to target to pick up something for set. And I was like, "Oh shit! Okay, I'm just gonna get everything that I need right now, so I never have to come back again." You know, so I was going through the aisles and I was just getting again everything that I needed. And I saw an air fryer, and I was like, eh, fuck it!" So I got it, and it pisses me off a little bit because I love to cook. I take a lot of care into my cooking, and especially with chicken, uh-huh. I baste my chicken. I use multiple uh, mediums of cooking for it so that it's perfect. And I got the air fryer. I accidentally fell asleep at 7.30 p.m. I woke up at 2 a.m. I got a defrosted piece of chicken out of my fridge. I accidentally put cinnamon all over it because I thought it was paprika. And again, it was 2.30 in the morning. I leaned into the cinnamon. I put some oh my honey and a little bit of cayenne in there. And I put in the air fryer Is the best chicken I've ever goddamn made. And I'm so mad about it.
0: Having an air fryer has changed how I reheat food. Mm-hmm. And- if you get like fried food, I don't know, fucking like samosas or whatever, uh, having an air fryer to reheat them, you can reheat them and they're fucking crispy. Again, yep. it is a game changer. We use that air fryer like several times a day now. Yeah, shit. It's a stupid name Yeah. for it. It's not an air fryer. It's a mini convection oven. Mm-hmm. It's not what I was expecting, but it is so much better than what I was expecting.
1: Same. I didn't know that it could just straight up cook meat. It is incredible. And it has changed my chicken game. And now I feel comfortable cooking shrimp because they really grossed me out before. I didn't like to look at them in their raw state. I think that they look really gross. (laughs) They're upsetting little sea bugs. They are. And you can always see the poop shoot. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, that's the hottest part. I know it's sexy, but it's too much for me. (laughs) (laughs) It's not sexy for my mouth. So that's my first peach, big old air fryer. I also got a four and a half foot money tree that I put next to my bed, which some people have pointed out that that's where a bedside table goes, but I am single, so I don't Mm. care. I got a bedside table, that side gets a tree. (laughs) Nice. So yeah, I got this four and a half foot tree in my room now and um, it brings me great joy. My third peach Is I found a new way to communicate with my mom. Go on. Well, you know, our relationships with our parents are ever changing. And especially as we get older and I'm from Texas and my parents are very Texan. And, you know, we don't really talk about shit and we don't really, you know, whatever. We have a very close relationship. But when it comes to things that are a little bit gushy, or like you know, talking about communication styles or stuff like that, it it becomes Uh all right, okay. Let's uh, you're okay, right? All right. And we just had a really, really great conversation about how I think she is a perfect human and doesn't need to change a thing about herself, and that I am a little bit more sensitive. So instead of like changing how she is, she just meets me halfway and knows that. I'm a little baby. I'm just a little baby. So, <laughs> and it was great. It's like so rare that we get to have these conversations, especially with our parents, about the way that our relationships are evolving. And I feel so lucky to have a relationship with both my mom and my dad where we can have an evolving relationship. And it is changing and we recognize that and like respect that about each other. I think it's pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks,
2: man. <laughs> Hell yeah, communication. Layton? My first one is that I have to park on the street, which is absolutely a lemon. But I, I noticed I was walking maybe past my car the other day and there was this beautiful little bird. I don't know what kind of bird it was, but it had like a little little tiny bird with a red top and like some green on that, like really pretty bird. And he was just sitting there on one of my rearview mirrors. And I was like, oh, that's so strange that he's sitting on my car. And then I went to my car this morning, so I was taking maybe for a little ride, and the bird was back, and I got into the car. He would, like, sit on the top of the mirror, hover down, smash into the mirror, go back up. I sat there, and I watched that bird do that for, like, five minutes. He wasn't hurting himself. Like, I wasn't sure what he was trying to do. He was just kind of, like, hopping around, and I was like, if I open my window, this bird will get into my car, guaranteed. And I had to, like, really hold myself back from rolling down the window because part of me just simply wanted to invite that chaos into my life this morning. And I did not. But I was like, okay, I need you to get out of here so I can drive because I don't want to injure you, little fucker. (laughs) And now I feel like I'm going to go back to my car because it's parked in the same spot. I feel like this bird is, like, my homie now. It's going to
0: be there. Yeah, it's going to be there. (laughs) Yeah. For sure.
2: So, bird, you're a peach. Second one is uh, my brain is not good right now. So I was like, I need to... Do something about that. And I stopped going to therapy like this time last year, just because I realized the therapist I had been seeing for two years, like I was not gelling with. Anyway, just today I sent off an email finally to find a new one. So that's good, I guess. Like I'm not excited about it, but I know ultimately it's a good thing for my terrible brain. Hell yeah. Yeah. So it's a positive thing, it's a begrudging peach. Good. And then my third one is. On the same topic of having bad brain, I'm just existing in a real depression nest right now. But over the past couple of days, like, a thing that my old therapist like kind of drilled into my head is like, when you're having a hard time doing stuff like the executive dysfunction shit, you know, something is better than nothing. And so don't beat yourself up if you can't do every single thing. It's just like putting one dish away or like doing one load of laundry or even just like picking up a couple of things and putting them away. Like it makes it a lot more manageable. So my place is cleaner than it's been. It's still not completely clean, and there are areas that are completely disgusting that I have to take care of, but just like after weeks of having zero motivation to do anything about it, I've just been kind of like trudging through and every day doing some stuff. So like, I don't know, those last two peaches are like mildly bummer peaches, but I'm just trying to be better. And those are my peaches.
0: I think those are great.
1: Yeah. That's helpful for me
2: too. I I tend to be the same way. Yeah. Bad Brain. Bad Brain. It's great to have a bad brain during this bad time.
0: (laughs) And it's even better to listen to Bad Brains, which is a great band. (laughs) It's true. You're right. Rachel, I want to tell you something. This is the longest episode we've ever recorded by quite a long shot. Wait, really? Oh my God. You're right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We have never gone this long. I told you it was going to be an hour and a half and we have blasted past that by an hour, but that's because it was so much fun talking to you.
2: Yeah. And seriously feel like I could have gone for three more hours. Like, same. This has been so fun.
0: This was the best. Thank you for taking all this time to be with us tonight. Where can people find you online?
1: You can find me, i um, Rachel Sam Evans or Rachel Sam Vans, depends on how your brain works, on every
0: platform.
1: <laughs> also, go talk to Smosh too. You know, I get bored during the day sometimes. So.
2: <laughs> and is there anything in particular that you want to plug aside from Smosh or just like projects you're excited about? Right, right,
1: right. They don't really need my help. That's true.
0: <laughs> yeah, they're, they're doing okay.
1: Yeah, they're fine. Every Sunday at 8 p.m. Pacific, On the Travel Channel, I'm on a show called Paranormal Caught on Camera. We're in our third season. We're about to start our fourth season. So I'm kind of the equivalent. You know that guy on Ancient Aliens who's like, aliens with the hair? Yes,
0: of course.
1: I'm that guy on this show. So if you would like to see me go aliens or (laughs) go on camera, I, I do that on Sundays.
2: You are literally living the ultimate dream. And I wanted to talk about that during this episode. And I we just got into so much other stuff. So like. I guess I'll have to come back. I guess so. Almost like you have to come back or like us hang out or something. Oh, I would also like that. <laughs> Tight. Well, everybody listening, hope you enjoyed. We're all here. Let's all take care of each other. Happy fit. Th- well, okay. I guess this comes out week after next neck- er, time. Whenever this comes out, I hope you're good. All right. Yes. Vibe check audience. Hope you're good.
0: Vibe check. Can I just say, due to the length, I know this is what the fans want to hear me say. It's my catchphrase. This episode was a heckin' chonker.
2: This is the last episode of Late Night. This is the end of the podcast. Goodbye.
0: My catchphrase.
2: (laughs) That's the name I dance under. (laughs) This is the end of the podcast. (laughs) Goodbye. Bye.
0: Layton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Layton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Layton Night, on Instagram at Layton underscore night, or email us at LaytonNight at gmail.com.